Welcome to Musically Challenged, your weekly helping of random music conversations based on whatever topic the guys choose. Their goal is to entertain and inform you on a variety of themes. This podcast is an expression of their lifelong love and commitment to music. Simply stated, music is life. This show may include adult themes and language. Once again, welcome to Musically Challenged. Here are your hosts, Chad and Lou. Welcome to episode 41 of Musically Challenged, your weekly helping of random music conversations based on pretty much whatever topic we want. I'm your host, Chad Knight, and with me as always is Lou Schwalbach. Good evening. This week we'll be asking, what's in a name? And be talking about songs that have a name as a part of the song title. This time, it's about guys. Well, there aren't quite as many as female names in song titles, but there still is a metric shitload of them. Tonight, we'll be choosing a few and chatting a bit about them. You know, why we like them or not, who it may or may not be about, etc. You know, the usual things you come to expect. If for some reason you went straight for the guys' names episode but wanted to hear girls' names, fret not. That was last week. Go and check it out. So now sit back and relax while we get the show started. Alrighty. So how's it going, Lou? Going pretty well. Uh, How's things for you? I can't complain. You know, uh couple days off of work. That's never a bad thing. That's always a good thing. Well, here we are. Men's names. Last week, we talked women's names. Right. And, you know, a little more friendly, I think, than guys' name songs? Um, I think so. I really do. I think the guys actually are going to be a little bit more... Um, they're a little darker. They are darker, but they're not usually all cut and dried, whereas the women are usually nice or not nice. These have different layers. It's gray layer. Um, gray areas. That's it. It's an onion donkey. There you go. (laughs) (laughs) So, why don't we start this off like we have been for a few weeks now? All right. You got a beer. What do you got for us? I did. I have, it's by Victory Brewing. It's Kirsch Ghost. That's how you pronounce that. It is Sour Cherry Beer, spelled with a B-I-E-R. So it must be German then, huh? Uh, Something like that, yeah. It's 4.7, 12 ounces this time, so that's always a plus. Yeah, there you go. Class Cherry Beer. Mm Mm-hmm. And um, Downington, Pennsylvania. So, good, strong German area, definitely. Yeah, yeah. When it's so, not all them damn Quakers. What's it say here? A sharp burst of cherry, sea salt, and a touch of spice brings refreshingly bold, tart, and juicy flavors to this effervescent and quenching ghost-style ale. Effervescent. Shall we, my friend? It's it's tart. It is indeed. I don't know if I'd go with sour. No, it's got some... It's. Honestly, I don't ch- taste the cherry. I taste more of an apple. Oh, see, I get the cherry. I, you know, when we when we opened these and smelled them, I was like, oh, this is going to be bad. But this isn't, it's not great. Don't get me wrong. I'm not going to run out and buy a six-pack of this. But if somebody hands it to you, especially in the summer, in the summer, this would be amazing. I would agree. On um, a really hot day with a really cold cherry beer. Yeah, this would, uh, and the price was right on this one. <laughs> yeah, you were saying that. Why don't you tell them what you found this for? This was three, or I'm sorry, six 12-ounce bottles for $3, $2.99. Wow, that is amazing. When you see a price point like that, you got to expect it to be terrible. Right, and it's not terrible. No, it's not something, as you mentioned, that we're going to go out and buy a metric shit ton of. Right. But at the same time, um, yeah, you're right. It'd be a good summer one. So we'll chalk this one up as a decent yeah, I'll call this one decent. All right, cool. All right, man, why don't you kick us off this week? All right. 
Well, we are going to go ahead and start with a little bit of Who's Johnny by El DeBarge. Okay. So you're going to get the shit out of the way. Yeah, kind of, yeah. So we've got songwriting husband and wife team Peter and Ina Wolf, who co-wrote other hits such as Everybody Have Fun Tonight by Wang Chung and We Built This City by Starship. Okay. They wrote the song for Eldrick El DeBarge. It was written for the 1986 movie Short Circuit with Ali Sheedy and Steve Gutenberg, which, if you haven't seen it, I would recommend going out and seeing oh, it. Oh, God, yeah. You know, and I put that in here. I, I was guessing. I'm like, I think it was in that movie, and you have just said that, yes, it was. Absolutely. You know, in the song High Level Overview, the movie's about a robot that comes to life. And falls in love with a girl. Right. But then Newton Crosby gets the girl in the end. Number five is alive! <laughs> the song talks about people... The singer is people too, is basically what he's saying. Yeah, I guess. And I guess it's supposed to be relating to the robot being human, even though it's not really. Let's just, uh, let's pretend we're human and take a listen. My heart's in It's great to be alive. songs about Johnny Five and the robot. He's the singer. It's talking about being in love with a human. It's pretty out there, but then again, it was the 80s, and everything in the 80s was pretty jacked up. Yeah, I think it was all the cocaine, actually. Probably the decade of excess and all that fun crap. I guess the story behind it was the song was done before the movie, and the producers enjoyed it so much, they gave the robot a scene in the movie where he took the name of Johnny as his own, which I can't see how the movie would work otherwise, because it, no, it pretty well no. flowed. Yeah, yeah. You know, strangely, now... When we're talking about this movie, don't go into this thinking it's some sort of masterpiece. It's oh, not. Oh, no, 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 no. But it's cute, and it's got a nice little story behind it. It's relatively family-friendly with a couple obscene gestures and some language and things. But yeah, no. I mean, there's a shit and a damn here and there, but there's I don't think there was any F-bombs in the movie. <laughs> there's a robot giving the finger. Well, yeah, yeah, there's that. But, but that's awesome. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but And then it, it features the actor who was... Um, Oh, what the hell is his name in, in Police Academy? Yeah, I know who you're talking about, and I can't think of it right now. I can't think of his name, but he's just the he's the asshole. Yeah. And he plays yeah. the same type of role. He does in every movie I've ever seen him in. He's, oh, what, there's a TV show he's on that he's actually pretty good on. Oh, is it? Yeah. Okay. But um, the song was the first one for L after leaving his family group due to being different than his previous release stuff. He was nervous it wouldn't do well. The fears were unfounded because it went to number one on the R&B charts. I don't see this as being an R&B song. It's more of a pop. I would, yeah, I'd call this solid bubblegum. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Not a bad song. I would say it's decent, so. Yeah, you know, this is this is one of those songs. It's a standard love song of the 80s. Mm -hmm. It's was in a great movie. You it know, was in a good movie. It was a great 80s movie. Great 80s movie, yeah. Much better, much better uh, rap you put on it there. But but the, actually, the song itself is just kind of ah for me. Have you ever seen the video? No. The video is horrid they're in a it's related to the movie though isn't no it? it's not the video really? they're they're in a um courtroom and he's being cross-examined by some female lawyer and all she does is say who's johnny or actually she says who is johnny because you know in the early part of the song they don't say who's johnny they're like who is johnny so it was just it was a horrible video i i don't know it's one of those songs i wouldn't change the channel 
but I'm not going looking for it either. No, not really. And I'm actually going to do one other thing before we get too much further. We skip doing trivia. Oh, shit! So I'm going to come back to that. All right, let's do that. Well, ask the trivia question. I'll answer it at the end. Exactly. So the question, because we're talking about guys' names. Yep. American DJ Robert Weston Smith is best known as a stage name of what? So that's the stage name, or that's his real that's name? That's his real name. His You're real name. His stage name. Yes, his real okay, name is enough. Robert Weston Smith. Okay, I have a couple ideas, but right. uh, got a little while well to think about yeah. it. So, what do you got for your first one? All right, so my first one is by Pearl Jam. It's a song called Jeremy, which is an American rock band, with lyrics written by vocalist Eddie Vedder and music written by bassist Jeff Ament. Jeremy was released in 1992 as the third single from Pearl Jam's debut album, Ten. That's a, such a great album. It is it well their best album and probably one of the best grunge type albums out there or to date. Yeah, absolutely. The song was inspired by a newspaper article Vetter read about a high school student who shot himself in front of his English class on January eighth, nineteen ninety one. It reached the number five spot on both the mainstream and modern rock Billboard charts. It did not originally chart on the regular Billboard Hot one hundred singles chart since it was not released as a commercial single in the U.S. at the time. But a re-release in July 1995 brought it up to number 79. The song gained, gained notoriety for its music video, directed by Mark Pellington, and released in 1992, which received heavy rotation by MTV and became a hit. Do you remember when MTV played music? I would have to think back on that one, actually. <laughs> but yeah, I think uh, there was a uh, like maybe a two-year span. Well, it was longer than that, but they started doing non-music stuff pretty early. They did, but it was very few and far between. Right, right. The original uh, music video for Jeremy was directed and produced by Chris Cafaro. Epic Records and MTV later rejected the music video and released the version directed by Pellington instead. In 1993, the Jeremy video was awarded four MTV Music Awards, including Best Video of the Year. Well, let's take a listen. So now, Pearl Jam formed in Seattle, Washington in 1990. No way. Yeah. <laughs> right? Washington? What? Grunge? Washington? You, you sure? You cross the border, they hand you a Nirvana CD and a flannel shirt. <laughs> and that's still today. Well, yeah. So since its inception, the band's lineup has consisted of Eddie Vedder, Mike McCready, Stone Gossard, and Jeff Ament. The band's fifth member is drummer Matt Cameron, who was part of Soundgarden who has been with the band since 1998. Formed after the demise of Gossert's and Amon's previous band, Mother Love Bone, Pearl Jam broke into the mainstream with its debut album. One of the key bands in the grunge movement in the early 1990s, over the course of the band's career, its members became noted for their refusal to adhere to traditional musical music industry practices, including refusing to make proper music videos or give interviews, and engaging in a much-publicized boycott of Ticketmaster. And that's your cue. I remember the Ticketmaster thing. I really um, – I wasn't expecting that. No. Um, I know you weren't. That's why I said that. And that's you. I wasn't a huge fan of Pearl Jam initially. Okay. Um, but that was something where I really didn't listen to modern stuff. But then later on as it comes out and the – oh, I don't know. What's it called? Like the fervor dies down. Then I go back and listen to it. Just same thing with Soundgarden. Didn't care for it initially, but now I like it. 
Okay. And the same thing with Pearl Jam 10, again, being one of their better ones, if not their best, with the Vitology, I think, being their other really good one. Vitology, I actually bought on vinyl. Nice. But anyway, in 2006, Rolling Stone described the band as having spent most of the past decade deliberately tearing apart their own fame, which is kind of true. Well, that was the grunge movement altogether, though. Right. So anyway, um, Pearl Jam were, were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame on April 7th, 2017, in their first year of eligibility. Nice. I don't know if they belong there. They belong there more so than anything hip-hop does. That's well, I, it's not that I don't think they played rock and roll. They played grunge rock, which is which is a form of rock and roll. But I just don't know if they're... I think there's other bands that should be there ahead of them. Correct. That's I guess that's kind of what I'm getting at. So why don't you take us into your next one? All right. We're going to go with a little bit of Uncle Ted. We've got Fred Bear by Ted Nugent. Now, Ted Nugent wrote and performed this track off of 1995 Spirit of the Wild album. Fred Bear was a real guy, actually a close friend of him. Of, of Nugent's that recently passed away, and this was his way of paying tribute to the guy. Okay. Um, the song talks about being at home in the woods, hunting and living off the land while being one with nature. The singer feels the spirit of the woods and that of his departed friend Fred Bear with him and guiding him on his deer hunt and speaks how he'll join you in the big hunt before too long. Let's get out in the woods and take a listen. The buck was mine forevermore. Because of Fred Bear, I'll walk down these trails again Take me back where I belong Fred Bear, I'm glad to have you in my side, my friend And I'll join you in the big hunt before too long Now the song features a soundbite of Fred Bear's Towards the End. Uh, the song's inspiration was the American bowman Fred Bear. He was a pioneer in the bow hunting community, starting Bear Archery Company in his garage in 1933. Okay. He contributed to multiple magazines such as Outdoor Life and Archery Magazine, as well as appeared on a TV show, American Sportsman. The song itself, as mentioned before, is a loving tribute from a good friend. It's a bit of a hunting anthem for a lot of hunters, especially bow hunters. I've always liked the song as it's just a really nice tribute. It's rock and roll and it's a tribute song. It, I know it won't happen, but a touching tribute song for my, for, for me, by my surviving family would be cool as hell. One reason that I could have not liked this was back when I was in college, a couple of the guys that lived in the dorm would blast this right before they left for the weekend for hunting. Oh, okay. And I could easily hate the song because of it, but it's still just a good song. It's one of my favorite of his that's not in-your-face hard rock. Uh-huh. So... Well, you know, personally, I think it's classic Nugent. Uh, you know, Uncle Teddy kills it again with this song about hunting and longing for the great outdoors. And that really shouldn't surprise people as he's as a renowned a hunter as he is politically a psychopath. Or at least thought to be that way. Right. I don't know. It almost It's almost as if he personifies nature in that of a spirit animal. Fred Bear is kind of like his spirit animal. Well, or his that, spirit yeah. guide, maybe. Right. I just love this song. I just think it, it, it's a great song. Like you said, it's a great tribute to uh, Fred Bear, who I did not know until this exact moment was a real person. I, you know, uh, not in my repertoire of knowledge, but great song. And I, I really can't find much wrong with it. I mean, it's just a great tribute song. And I almost saw it as a tribute song before I even knew Fred Bear was a real person. Okay. I thought of it more as a tribute to a 
you know, to nature and or to... like the Native American. Right. Yeah. Which actually a lot of people thought Fred Bear was Native American because of all of this Spirit of the Wild and everything, but he was actually just the regular white guy. Okay. Fair enough. So, and on that note, let's go into your next guy. All right. My next one is, and I want to apologize to everybody, but it's Vlad the Impaler by Kasabian. <laughs> West Rider Pauper Lunatic Asylum is the third studio album by British indie rock band Kasabian. That should tell you everything right there. British indie pop. Which was released on 5 June 2009. It is also the first album by the band to not feature Christopher Karloff, the band's lead guitarist and songwriter, following his departure during the writing stages of Kasabian's second album, Empire. The rhythm guitarist Sergio Pisnorno, that's right, Pisnorno, took over as the main force behind the band's songwriting and also forced as lead guitarist to replace Karloff's duties. The album was nominated for the 2009 Mercury Prize. In October 2009, it was voted Best Album of the Year by Q Magazine. The album name is not related to the Sydney suburb of West Ryde, New South Wales, Australia. And I have to apologize again, but let's take a listen. So, Kasabian are an English rock band formed in Leicester, 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 in 1997. The band's original members consisted of vocalist Tommy Megan, guitarist and vocalist Sergio Pisnorno, guitarist Chris Karloff, and bassist Chris Edwards. The band's lineup was completed by drummer Ian Matthews in 2004 and after a string of session drummers. Karloff left the band in 2006 and founded a new band called Black o Onassis. Jay Mailer joined as touring lead guitarist in 2006. Mailer left the band for Liam Gallagher's BDI in 2013 to be replaced by Tim Carter. Liam Gallagher is in Oasis? Yep, yep. Okay. In 2010 and 2014, Kasabian won the Q Awards for Best Act in the World Today, while they were also named Best Live Act of the, two, of the 2014 Q Awards and the 2007 NME Awards. The band's music is often described as indie rock, but Pizzorno said has said he hates indie bands and does not feel Kasabian fit to the category. Kasabian has released six studio albums. The band's music, which has been described as a mix between the, the Stone Roses and Primal Scream with, a, with the swagger of Oasis. Their music has won them several awards and recognition in the media, including a Brit Award in 2010 for Best British Group, and their live performances have been have received praise, the most notable of which was their appearance as headliners at the 2014 Glastonbury Festival. Okay, I listen to Vlad the Impaler. If all their music is like that, the people in London don't know music. My no, it was just, the fuck did I just listen to? Seriously. And then, <laughs> I'm sorry, you kept saying the guy's name Pizzorno. I just think it's like a shitty karaoke pizza. No, it's P-I-Z-Z-O-R-N-O. I get that, Pizzo- but at the same time, Pizzorno. I just think of like DiGiorno's the good stuff, Pizzorno's the shitty stuff. Or the pissy stuff. There you go. So I, I don't have any opinion on this one. It's, it's awful. Did you watch the video? No. I listened to the music because you I should, had to. You should have watched the video. You uh, thought the music was bad? 
The music is brilliant compared to the video. It could be Bikini Girls with machine or with machine guns. Bikini Girls with machine guns is a good song. I call bullshit on that. But moving on. <laughs> what do you got next? Moving on, we're gonna go with an earworm that most people in the Hades in hate. Well, they in Haiti too, maybe. But in the 80s, hated, and that was Mickey by Tony Basil. Now, songwriter Mike, songwriters Mike Chapman and Nikki Chin, who wrote such other hits as Love is a Battlefield for Pat Benatar and Ballroom Blitz for Sweet, wrote this song, but it was originally titled Kitty, about a woman, and was re- released by the UK group Racy in 1979. Tony Basil changed the title character to Mickey and made it about a guy and released it in 1982 on her Word of Mouth album. The song's about a love-struck girl singing it to her guy, Mickey. Let's just take a listen to what she has to say. controversy due to the line any way you want to do it i'll take it like a man which okay when it it was a girl who was the topic it was just butt stuff no biggie but now that it's a guy it might be gay butt stuff and oh my god so (laughs) we could get into a whole we could do a whole episode on the distinguishing factor between it being girl butt stuff and guy butt stuff exactly no the gender change is what caused the big issue, and Tony Basil actually said herself that it was ridiculous. She's quoted, actually. As far as the inspiration, the original rumor on why she changed it to Mickey was because she had a thing for the monkeys, Mickey Dolans. Well, who didn't? Well, I was more of a Peter guy, but thank you. <laughs> I, we know you're into Peter. <laughs> Suck it. No! <laughs> Anyways, after meeting him on set in the movie Head, that she choreographed. She does a lot of choreography. Okay. Now, um... Basil denied it, saying she really didn't know the guy. Perhaps it was just knowing his name, but not actually having a thing for him is what caused the, the name to be chosen. Who knows? I mean, it's it's a solid 80s pop song that makes every compilation. I don't care what 80s CD you find out there, this goddamn song will be on it. And this song gets skipped almost every time because I'm tired of hearing it. If you remember the video, it's about her with a bunch of cheerleaders. Yep. And her being the head cheerleader, of course. And... I just remember also back in the day, Disney used this song because of Mickey Mouse. Right. And it was annoying then. I don't so much care for the song. I'll probably skip it most times because it's just irritating. Fair enough. Uh, you know, I, I wrote, oh, Mickey, you're so fine, blah, blah, blah. I actually prefer Weird Al's version of the music as Ricky. Ricky. Mm-hmm. The song annoys the hell out of me. It really does. It makes me... I mean, just talking about it, I'm like, ugh, cringing, you know? It's bubblegum pop at its worst. It, it really is. I just said, please, please, please make it end. Which is why we're only going to make you listen to a snippet of it, which is all we ever do. Yeah. If you want to torture yourself, go on YouTube, look up any 80s compilation, you'll find it. Or just look up Mickey by Tony Basil. Or don't and save yourself. Right, there is that. So let's rebound. We are going to rebound, actually. Now, if I say to you the band Depeche Mode, what are, what are your initial thoughts? Suicide. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it, it's not a band that I'm big into. But I'm a great, It's a greatest hits band for me. 
Yeah, absolutely. And this song is, in my, in my opinion, this is one of their best songs. Personal Jesus is sung by the ele English electronic band Depeche Mode. Released on August 28, 1989 as the lead single from their seventh album, Violator. The song reached number 28 on the Billboard Hot 100. The song was the first single to make the U.S. Top 40 for the band since their 1984 single, People Are People, and was their first gold-certified single in the U.S., quickly followed by the band's subsequent single, Enjoy the Silence. In 2004, Personal Jesus was ranked number 368 in Rolling Stone Magazine's list of the 500 greatest songs of all time. I think that might be a little low, actually. Really? I do. For, for me. I'd have to see the rest of the list. Well, that does make a difference, true. And in September 2006, it was voted as one of the 100 greatest songs ever in Q Magazine. Personal Jesus was re-released on a single on May 30th, 2011 for the new Depeche Mode remix album, Remixes 2, 81 to 11. I'm, I'm assuming that's 1981 to 2011? Assumably. With the leading remix by the production team Stargate. Since its release, the song has been covered by numerous artists, including Marilyn Manson, Sammy Hagar, Lollipop Lustkill, Hilary Duff. Pause. What was that last one? Lollipop Lustkill. I may have to look for that just because of the name. <laughs> Hilary Duff, Johnny Cash, and The Mindless Self-Indulgence. I don't know what The Mindless Self-Indulgence is, but I left it in this list because I need to go find that one. I'd be intrigued to hear Johnny Cash sing this song. I would be too, yeah. So let's reach out and touch faith. So Depeche Mode are an English electronic band that formed in Basildon, Essex in 1980. The group consists of founders Dave Gahan, Martin Gore, and Andy Fletcher. Depeche Mode released their debut album, Speak and Spell, in 1981, bringing the band into the British New Wave scene. Original band member Vince Clark left the band after the release of the album, leaving the band as a trio to record A Broken Frame, released the following year. Gore took over the lead songwriting duties, and later, in 1982, Alan Wilder officially joined the band to fill Clark's spot, establishing a lineup that would continue for the next 13 years. De Depeche Mode have been a trio again since 1995 when Wilder left. Depeche Mode have had 50 songs in the UK singles chart and 17 top 10 albums in the UK charts. They have sold over 100 million records worldwide. Q included the band in the list of the 50 bands that changed the world. Depeche Mode also ranked number 98 on VH100, VH1's 100 Greatest Artists of All Time. In December 2016, Billboard magazine named Depeche Mode the 10th most successful dance club artist of all time. In October 2017, it was announced Depeche Mode will be nominated into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2018. I can't argue with that. No, I think they they belong there. Again, it's... Maybe early, it, but they well, belong there. Right, and I think, what is it, 25 years that I think they have to wait? Yeah, I think it's 25 years from the formation of the band. Right, they have to be active for 25 years, which, if anything, that's cutting it kind of <clears throat> close. But then again, too, again, as we've mentioned before, there's a lot of artists that I don't think belong in there. Right, that... but the song Personal Jesus, 
I, I don't know. I, it's There's so, something about so, that. There is something about that song, and it really calls to me. And I don't know why, because if you actually sit there and look at the lyrics, they don't make a whole lot of sense. No, not really. And I my notes even too. I mean, I'm not sure if I'm not. I'm sure they're not talking about the Jesus from The Big Lebowski. No, no, I don't <laughs> think they are. Um, it could conceivably be a sacrilegious song. I mean, if you sit down and look at the lyrics, it could horribly be. But at the same time, you're right. It's one of those where it's like something is drawing you to keep listening to it. I enjoy the song as well. I enjoy, well, enjoy the silence. Right. It's one of the other ones that I like the original. I like the cover by Lacuna Coil that we listened to way right. back in the day. Again, they're another one of those greatest hits albums. Where yeah, absolutely. I couldn't listen to their whole catalog, but a greatest hits one would work out great. Yeah, yeah. So, all right. What do you got next? We're going to go to, we're going to stay up in Canada, actually, or go up to Canada. We're All right. We're going, to, we're, rush. Going, we're going to go to Canada, eh? Yeah. We're going to do some Tom Sawyer. Okay. Now, Getty Lee, Neil Pert, Alex Lifeson, and then, of course, we have to have the hardest damn name to pronounce. Is it Pi Dubois? Sounds good to me. Sure. Wrote this single off the 1981 album Moving Pictures. Uh, the story goes that the band was hanging out at Ronnie Hawkins' farm just outside of Toronto. Dubois presented Pert with a poem named Louis the Lawyer that was oftentimes cited as Louis the Warrior, or Louis the Warrior, I don't know, that Dubois toyed with and expanded. Getty and Alex set the poem to music, and that's when Tom Sawyer was born. Let's take a quick listen to the modern-day warrior. What do you say about his company? Pert, the original lyrics were kind of a portrait of a modern-day rebel, a free-spirited individual striding through the world, all wide-eyed and purposeful. I added the themes of reconciliation of the boy and man. Whatever. Yeah, sounds good. Yeah, I'll sure, I'll buy that. The song really only relates to the literary character in the name alone, unless there's some other Tom Sawyer out there that's just a coincidence. This one, however, is one of Rush's greatest hits. I love the vocals. The instrument work is great. It has an amazing solo by Lifeson. I can't in good conscience say that if you listen to one Rush song, make it this one, but I can definitely say with confidence that this is one of their top fives if you're going to listen to any of them. You know, I'm not a huge Rush fan, and I think we've talked about this before. Mm -hmm. Just, they don't do much for me, but that doesn't stop me from just flat out loving this song. And there are a few others from Rush that I really enjoy, but this one is probably in my top, this has probably got to be my top Rush song. Okay. I don't care what it's about because i really can't figure out what it's about it's some existential bullshit and you know how i feel about meanings for music right you're the same way on this one well on this one you know in a lot of cases i look at meaning in music but i I literally not only did i listen to the song with the lyrics you know playing across Mm -hmm. the screen i then went to another website and went what are the fucking lyrics to this song and even then reading them i'm just like okay sure you got it you know so rush from the great white north Check out this song. I, and I would I would say, if you're going to listen to Rush, start with this song. Okay. I, I say it, it's the best one they've got, or at least the best one I've heard, and enjoy it. All right. Well, what's you, what do you got for a follow-up? All right. Up next, I got Daniel by Elton John. It's a song and ballad written by Elton John and Bernie Taupin. 
It appeared on the 1973 album, Don't Shoot Me, I'm Only the Piano Player. (laughs) I love the name of that album, actually. It was written by John and his lyricist, Bernie Taupin. In the U.S., the song reached number two on the pop charts, only held from number one by My Love by Paul McCartney and Wings, and number one on the adult contemporary charts for two weeks in the spring of 1973. In the United States, it was certified gold on 13 September 1995 by the RIAA. Writers John and Toppin received the 1973 Ivor Novello Award for Best Song Musically and Lyrically. Bernie Toppin wrote Daniel after reading an article in either Time or Newsweek about a Vietnam War veteran who had been wounded and wanted to get away from the attention he was receiving when he went back home. The last verse in the original draft was cut from the final version, which has led some to speculate on the contents. Daniel has been the most misinterpreted song that we've ever written, explained Toppin in the Two Rooms Tribute Project. The story was about a guy that went back to a small town in Texas, returning from the Vietnam War. They'd lauded him when he came home and treated him like a hero, but he just wanted to go home, go back to the farm, and try to get get back to the life that he'd led before. I wanted to write something that was sympathetic to the people that came home. Well, let's see what he means. Hercules John, born Reginald Kenneth Dwight, is an English singer, pianist, and composer. He has worked with lyricist Bernie Taupin as his songwriting partner since 1967. They have collaborated on more than 30 albums to date. In his five-decade career, Elton John has sold more than 300 million records, making him one of the best-selling music artists in the world. He has more than 50 top 40 hits, including seven consecutive number one U.S. albums, 58 Billboard top 40 singles, 27 top 10, four number two, and nine number one. For 31 consecutive years, 1970 to 2000, he had at least one song in the Billboard Hot 100. His tribute single, Repent in Dedication to the Late Princess Diana, Candle in the Wind, 1997, sold over 33 million copies worldwide and is the best-selling single in the history of the UK and US singles charts. He has also composed music, produced records, and has occasionally acted in films. He has received five Grammy Awards, five Brit Awards, winning two awards for outstanding contribution to music and the first Brits icon in 2013 for his lasting impact on British culture. An Academy Award, a Golden Globe Award, a Tony Award, a Disney Legends Award, and the Kennedy Center Honors in 2004. In 2004, Rolling Stones ranked him number 49 on its list of 100 influential musicians of the rock and roll era. In 2013, Billboard ranked him on the most successful male solo artist on the Billboard Hot 100 Top All-Time Artist, third overall behind the Beatles and Madonna. He was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 1994, is an inductee into the Songwriters Hall of Fame, and is a fellow of the British Academy of Songwriters, Composers, and Authors. Having been named an Order of the British Empire in 1996, John was made a Knight Bachelor by Elizabeth II for Services to Music and Charitable Services in 1998. John has performed at a number of royal events, such as the funeral of Princess Diana at Westminster Abbey in 1997, the party at the Palace in 2002, and the Queen's Diamond Jubilee concert outside Buckingham Palace in 2012. Now, I know that's wrong, a long but 
I couldn't really cut any of that. No, the the guy's got to have a separate room in his in his mansion just for his accolades. Exactly. And now the song Daniel. I love the song Daniel. It is a it is a, it's a ballad, easily. You know, it's not what I thought it was about. It's so misinterpreted, though. Who knows what it's really about? I well, mean, because that's what Bernie Taupin was telling us. It's about a guy that came home from Vietnam. True, I suppose. You um, know, and it's not like some of these we've done where they tell you one story and then the next interview they tell you a different story. Exactly. And, I think they do that just to fuck with you, actually. Yeah, quite possibly. Or, you know, it's a, it comes out of the whole thing that my wife always says, they don't know what the fuck they're doing. They're putting music to wor- words to music and it comes out and, and then, then somebody it, wants some deeper meaning to it, so they just make shit up. Well, it's the same thing with movies, though. I mean, thing, it is. I, my fiction to film class, we watched Citizen Kane and tore, tore apart that damn thing. Oh, the camera was at this angle, and this that's what it meant. I'm like, I don't fucking care. <laughs> I watch it to be entertained, not to read into the damn thing. Right, right. Now, with the song, it wouldn't be my first choice for Elton John at oh, all. Oh, God, no. no, no. Um, classic ballad. It's a good song. Uh, uh, belongs in the, on the top ten, I'd say. Uh, top 20. Because he's got his career has gone so long. There's so many other good songs. Oh out yeah, there. yeah. And the stuff, the work he did with Disney is amazing. Oh hell's yeah. I mean Lion King. Yeah, just, and that's just a start, you know. Right. Exactly. So all right, I went on long about Elton John. So let's wrap this up. Let's move on to the next one. All right, we're gonna go a little shorter. We're gonna go with some Charlie Brown by the Coasters. Now written by legendary songwriter duo Jerry or Jerome Jerry Lieber and Mike Stoller who also wrote Hound Dog, Jailhouse Rock, and Love Potion Number no. 9 and Yakety Yak. Charlie Brown was released by the Coasters in 1959, where it was a top 10 hit for the quartet. The song talks about a likely high school guy who is a well-known troublemaker, no, Rapscallion. Ooh, I like the <laughs> words. I know, right? Um, did you find that somewhere? I just wanted to use that word, actually. Did you come up with it, or did you find it somewhere? No, it just, actually, I came up with that because I wanted to put that word in here, Rapscallion. Okay. That's, a, that's a great word. I'm just... I was just curious. <laughs> now, of course, when confronted about his misdeeds, he plays all innocent, asking why everybody is all picking on him. Let's just take a quick listen so you know what's going on. Who walks in the classroom, cool and slow? Who calls the English teacher daddy Oh, Charlie Brown, Charlie Brown, he's a clown. That Charlie Brown, he's gonna get caught. Just you wait and see. Why's everybody always picking on me? Now, according to Lieber, the name came up and the lyrics just followed. Despite popular misconceptions, the song has nothing to do with the Peanuts character. Peanuts came out less than 10 years prior and hadn't really found its foothold yet, so they're not really going to write a song about it. However, people still found it to be alike, mainly because of why is everybody always picking on me because of Charlie Brown being the pessimist. And he's a downer. I I think the song's a, a fun song. I mean, it harkens back to the lingo of the time, the daddy-o, and just brings like the happy days slash grease era of Americana out. And I think the coasters have put out some really good stuff. I prefer Yakety Yak, but this is still an entertaining song. Who calls the English teacher daddy-o? Exactly. Yeah, no, uh, Charlie Brown, it's a, I wrote a fun 60s romp, but I heard you say it was 59. That's close Close enough. enough. About a slacker who likes gambling, smoking, and basically being a class clown. From his point of view, he's being persecuted by the man. In reality, he's just a bad student who thinks he's cool. You know those douchebags think they're cool and they're just assholes. That's really what it's all about. That wraps it up in a nice little package. Yeah, it really does. 
At least, but this is a fun package, at least. Yeah, it is a great song. I enjoy it. It's a fun song, you know, and I've actually seen a video where they use the Peanuts characters oh, really? with the song, yeah. Oh, that's neat. So, you know, I get where people are, think about the, you know, the, the meshing of the two, but you're right. It has nothing to... I never saw it once saw Charlie Byrne drinking, smoking, or gambling. No, but he's a whiner. Well, he is. He's the he's the eternal, you know, pessimist. He's and he's the punching bag, really. Yeah, he is. But he always comes out on top. I mean, look at the Christmas tree. Come on. True. Gets that shitty ass little tree, and then all of a sudden it goes crazy, and then everybody who's been picking on him for what about fifty four minutes? Yeah. For the last six minutes, they come about, and everybody's his friend again. It's like you know what? You guys are such fair weather friends. It's not even got him funny. And every. Every possible one. show you can find of it, yeah. Every single one. The, yeah. I mean, the Christmas one, the Great Pumpkin, the Thanksgiving one, everybody treats him like shit. It's almost like in high school. Three years, nobody cared to talk to you, but then senior year, everybody's like, oh my God, sign my yearbook. It's been so great to see you for four years. I'm like, you know, fuck you. You haven't talked to me for four years, and now that we're leaving, you want to? You know, kiss my ass. Yeah, no, I, I totally hear you. So, so the song is good. We both like it. Let's move on to your next one. All right. So up next, I've got Buddy Holly. It's a song by the American rock band Weezer, written by Rivers Cuomo. It was released as the second single from the band's debut album, Weezer. Now, we're talking the Blue Album here in 1994, because every one of their albums is called Weezer. But they've got the Blue Album, they have the Green Album, the White Album, and the Orange Album, I believe. That sounds stupid. It is stupid. But anyway... The single was released on what would have been Buddy Holly's 58th birthday. The lyrics reference the song's 1950s namesake and actress Mary Tyler Moore. It reached number 2 and 34 on the U.S. Modern Rock Track charts and the U.S. Mainstream Rock Tracks chart, respectively. It also reached number 12 in the United Kingdom. Rolling Stones ranked Buddy Holly number 499 on the list of the 500 greatest songs of all time. Just eked it in there. I think that's right where it belongs. (laughs) The single was certified gold by the RIAA in 2006. VH1 ranked it as one of the 100 greatest songs of the 90s at 59 in December 2007. I think we should take a listen. So Rivers Cuomo said he remembers wondering whether or not to include the song on Weezer. He almost kept it off the final track list, but encouragement from producer Rick Ocasek soon changed his mind. Yes, that Rick Ocasek. From the Cars. Yep. Who who has a face for radio. I don't know. It might be a little ugly for that. No, he's not Joey Ramone ugly, but he's... (laughs) Okay, fair enough. In the book, Rivers Edge, Ocasek is quoted saying... I remember at one point he was hesitant to do Buddy Holly, and I was like, Rivers, we can talk about it. Do it anyway, and if you don't like it when it's done, we won't use it. But I think you should try. You did write it, and it's a great song. Cuomo said that he felt the song was too cheesy and didn't know if the song represented the sound he was going for with the band's music. Matt Sharp recalls, Rick said it would be st- we'd be stupid to leave it off the album. We'd come into the studio in the morning and find little pieces of paper with doodles on them. We want Buddy Holly. <laughs> An early demo of Buddy Holly recorded by Cuomo in 1993 has a different feel as the song is played at a much slower tempo than the version that appears on the album. The version appeared on Alone, the home recordings of Rivers Cuomo, 
The liner notes for Alone explain that the chorus, in its most primitive form, originally was sung as, Ooh-wee-oo, you look just like Ginger Rogers. Oh-oh, I move just like Fred Astaire. The rest of the chorus mm. stayed the same as the Blue Album version. So they changed that. Thankfully, because I don't like the old one. No, I didn't, I didn't like that either. But this song, you know, I went through my grunge phase. And yeah. Weezer was part of that. It wasn't really grunge. But that kind of all came together. It that was like was, a grungy alternative. Yeah, it was it was something different. But, you know, he had like uh, Buddy Holly. They had the sweater song mm-hmm. and a bunch of them. But Buddy Holly was one of those songs that... It was almost hipster, kind of, before hipster came in. Yeah, it would be hipster today. Right. right. Absolutely. Um, and it didn't last long. It lasted the Blue Album. I had it. I played the shit out of it for about six months. And I still have the CD somewhere, but... It doesn't break the light of day very often. Obviously, you care so much to know where the hell it is. <laughs> well, it's in my it's in my binder of, of of CDs, but you know, it's one of those that it doesn't hit the light of day very often. No, I was never really a big Weezer fan. The song's okay. However, I was because I have asthma. Oh, okay. <laughs> nice. Um, yeah. Sorry, it's late. It took me a second. No, honestly, the video being set in the Happy Days universe is the reason that I enjoyed the song. Yeah. The video was cool as hell, the the retro type thing. Yep. The song itself, I could take or leave. Yeah, I think I'm at that point now with it in my in my life of how music lives in, in my world. And I think it's one of those, I hear it on the radio, I'll probably sing along with it. But, I didn't know it that much. I know the chorus. Oh, God, I knew that entire album. I'm sure you did. Front to back. And I hate to say it now, but, you know, at the time... That's what I was into. And yeah, fair enough. No apologies for what I like listening to now, then, you, or... You like what you like. In the future, yeah, exactly. So, all right, why don't you take us into your next one? All right, we're going to go with a little Ozzy. Can never go wrong with Ozzy. Well, I'm going to... Not sure if I 100% agree with that, but about 98%, because I'm sure we could find some Ozzy shit. Well, I'm sure there is. But, that being said, no, I got Perry Mason. All right. Now, Perry Mason... The song itself, Ozzy, Zach Wilde, and John Purdell co-wrote the song off of the seventh studio album, Osmosis. Of course, spelled O-Z-Z. <laughs> Osmosis. Yeah. I like it. Now, the song could conceivably have many different meanings, from drugs to conscience to anything in between. As we know about meanings, what does Lou think about them? Everybody? He doesn't give a shit. Exactly. What is it about? Don't care. It's just got great music. Let's take a quick listen for you, and then we'll talk more. if there's any real right or wrong answer especially as much drugs as ozzy did i mean between him and i think keith there's nothing there was nothing left that's why they make synthetic drugs that's quite possible yeah now based on my thoughts and my uneducated opinions the song is simply about raymond burr the fictional perry mason lawyer who was on earl stanley gardner's books of the 1930s yep. i didn't realize they were that old about murder cases there's a lot of trippy references in this song which anybody who's listened to him or any of ozzy's stuff really shouldn't be too surprised Zach Wilde simply shreds on this song. Oh, yeah. I mean... It's a beautiful... It's a beautiful sound. Absolutely. I mean, he is a master guitarist. Uh, that's There's no ifs, ands, or buts. The video has multiple Aussies talking and singing at each other, which is actually pretty damn hilarious if you watch that. And 
the album really didn't do too well. There's a lot of dislike for it, but this is honestly one of my favorite Ozzy albums. It's not, it's no, it's not no more tears, but it's still a pretty damn good album. Yeah, no, I agree with you. So I looked at this as basically an homage to the TV lawyer, Perry Mason. The music is enjoyable. Ozzy's voice is powerful as always. We both, we basically follow an episode of Perry Mason set to a story told in the vocals of Ozzy. It's a great song for the fun run into the TV drama through music. I recommend it for those times when you're feeling in the mood for something just a little bit different from and, Ozzy. And if you want to laugh, actually watch the video because especially when he's like waving his hands. I don't know I've if got, you No, it. I didn't watch the video. Well, I watched the lyrical video where oh, it's just the lyrics. Yeah, but no, the actual video, which I think was off the Ozman Cometh, they, okay. they included the video on the three CD set. Oh, okay. It shows Ozzy kind of putting his hands down, kind of like, what are we going to do? And then it has the other Ozzy's looking at him laughing. And it's got him with his little black glasses on and everything. It's pretty damn funny. Yeah, it sounds like it. I mean, I enjoy this song. When I first, when I saw it, I'm like, Perry Mason by Ozzy Osbourne. It was one of those songs where you're like, you know, you're trying to place it. Sure. And then I hit the music and I went, oh, Perry Mason by Ozzy Osbourne. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, no, great song. Yeah, I dig it. What do you got for next? All right, so up next, um, all right, this is this is a PSA. We are doing a rap song. Okay. Two white guys doing a rap song, well, by a white guy. Yeah, so it qualifies it. Yeah. So Stan is a song by American rapper Eminem featuring British singer Dido, or Dido, or how do you say that, Dido? It's Dido. Dodo? She's actually not bad looking either. Well, no. She was pregnant in this video. Really? Yeah, I don't know if she was actually pregnant or if she was pregnant for the video. Oh, okay, all right. But it was released on November 21st, 2000 as the third single from Eminem's third album, The Marshall Mathers LP. It was number one in 11 countries. Dito's lyrics are actually a sample of the opening lines from her song, Thank You. The 45 King produced track also uses a slightly modified break from Thank You as its bass sample. Stan has been called one of Eminem's best songs and is considered one of his signature songs. The song was nominated for multiple awards, including Best Song at the MTV Europe Music Awards, Video of the Year, Best Rap Video, Best Direction, Best Cinematography at the MTV Video Music Awards, but only one Best International Artist Video at the Much Music Video Awards. In April 2011, Complex Magazine put together a list of the 100 Greatest Eminem Songs, ranking Stan at number two. What was number one? Or, uh, I didn't look. If any my guess would there, be. why don't you tell us? Well, my guess would be um, the song from 8 Mile. Oh, Lose Yourself? Yeah, Lose Yourself would be my guess. That won an Oscar, didn't it? I think that won an Academy Award. Oh, you mean Eight Mile? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, no, the the Lose Yourself. I think that's. Well, yeah, but it's from the from the movie Eight right, Mile. Right. Right. Yeah. The name of the eponymous epon epa. God, I hate that fucking word. Eponymous. Yeah. Or eponymous. Eponymous. Name of the the name of the eponymous character has given rise to a slang term <laughs> online, which refers to overzealous, maniacal, overly obsessed fans of a celebrity or personality. The term has been included in the Oxford English Dictionary. Let's listen to Stan. Sometimes I even cut myself to see how much it bleeds. It's like adrenaline. The pain is such a sudden rush for me. See, everything you say is real, and I respect you because you tell it. My girlfriend's jealous because I talk about you 24-7. But she don't know you like I know you slim. No one does. She don't know what it was like for people like us growing up. You gotta call me, man. I'll be the biggest fan you'll ever lose. Sincerely yours, Stan. P.S. We should be together, too. So the song tells the story of a person named Stanley Stan Mitchell, who claims to be the biggest fan of Eminem. 
Stan writes a plethora of letters to Eminem. With each verse, he becomes gradually more obsessed with him, and when there is no reply, he becomes progressively angrier. He finally creates a voice recording of himself driving his lake into a car with his pregnant girlfriend in the trunk. Driving his lake into the car? Is that what I said? Yeah. Sorry, driving his car into the lake. You don't need to edit that out either. I'm not going to, and (laughs) fuck you. The first three verses are delivered by Eminem as Stan, while the fourth verse is Eminem as himself attempting to write to Stan and reason with the troubled young man, only to realize that he had already heard about Stan's death on the news. It is a very dark song. It's powerful, yeah. It's very powerful. It is, you know, and it's one of these things where I've always kind of like fringe listened to Eminem. You know, I've never... Even if you don't like rap, you can still get away with it. Right. It was kind of the whole thing where Eminem, Kid Rock... Okay, yeah. You know, those guys who kind of started out in the rap, but they kind of do... It's more than rap. It's like hard rock rap almost. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I really enjoy that this song, I hadn't really listened to before. I'd heard it once or twice, but I hadn't really listened to it. It's very powerful, and it really shows what, you know, what some artists artists or actors or whatever famous people have to go through now it's not based on a true story and anything that i found this is just something that you know eminem wrote right which is great because could you imagine having that on your you know picture yourself being famous and somebody killing themselves because i am famous we talked about this already i know we did we're both celebrities yes i suppose we are okay (laughs) but let's say we had actual fans ouch dude (laughs) yes i know what you're saying you know, and all of a sudden you find out that somebody killed themselves because you didn't write a response to them in, you know, soon enough or in their mind soon enough. Oh, that'd be chewing at your guts. It would be. However, on the other hand, think about what other, finger quotes, greatest fans have done. Selena. Oh, yeah. Um, what, uh, Lennon. Yep, John um, Lennon. Oh, God, what was it? Hinckley. Didn't he shoot um, Didn't he shoot the president because of Jodie Foster? Yeah, yeah. But, I mean, and the one that we talked about earlier, remember when we did women's songs, we did... Uh, Amy something or other from uh, Evanescence, that Snow... Uh, oh, Amy was, Lee. Yes. That Snow Queen. Snow, Snow White Queen or whatever else. That one was a stalking song, too. I'm your biggest fan and dying for your idol. I mean, that's that's jihadist shit right there. Yeah, that's, that's, you know, that's not normal thought patterns in anybody's world. No, not at all. But, you know, it, it's one of those things that maybe it's a good thing we're not that famous. Because if that ever happened to me, I don't know, I, it would be hard. It would be difficult to get over. I'm sure after time it would heal. Right. But at the same time, that'd be pretty... I mean, I mean it's be, not really your fault in any way. No, it, you but know, you're still going to internalize it because yeah. you are ultimately the one who was their object of the affection. Right. And on that note... Why don't we go to something happier? Do you have something happier? I absolutely have something happier. Okay, that's fact, good. I'm going to finish up with You Can Call Me Al by Paul Simon. Oh, I've been waiting for this song. Now, Paul Simon wrote the song that was released off the 1986 album Graceland. The song talks about a guy who is seemingly having a bit of a personal crisis, possibly midlife, and is struggling. The story of it goes that Simon was in South Africa during apartheid, if you remember back in the day when that was a thing. Yeah. It was It was basically, um, you know, it was the same thing we did in America with, you know, you had colored like water the, the fountains. Jim, and, um, Jim Crow laws. Yeah. So you had like colored water faucets and white water faucets and, mm-hmm. and you know, silly stuff by today's standards. But, but at the time, it people was... People died over that stuff. Oh, yeah. And it, it happened much later in South Africa, or it lasted much longer, I should say, sure. than it did in America. Paul Simon was defying a cultural boycott just by being there. Uh, he took a lot of heat for it, 
And because while his intentions may have been pure, some of the black leaders in the country thought it was a violation of the boycott and it was going to hinder their cause. When asked about the song, Simon just explained, it's really the story of somebody like me who goes to Africa with no idea and ends up having an extraordinary spiritual experience. Why don't we have a spiritual experience while taking a listen? He looks around, around, he sees angels in the architecture, spinning in infinity, he says, Amen, hallelujah, if you be my bodyguard. The song is pretty cut and dried, actually. I mean, the video was super basic. It had five foot three Paul Simon standing next to six foot four Chevy Chase. They were lip syncing. Chevy Chase was finger quotes singing and doing a kind of a shitty job of lip syncing, actually. Yep, yep. In a really tiny white room, uh, probably cost maybe about ten grand to make. If, if that, if and and eight a grand of that was to pay Chevy Chase. Probably, yeah. Um, <laughs> but it paid out in spades because the song actually peaked at number twenty three on the Billboard Hot one hundred. That's just, that's I I actually thought it would have went higher than that. The the parent album did win a Grammy in nineteen eighty seven. Okay. So it may not have hit the charts, but at least he got gold for it. And little story on where did Betty and Al come up from? Because you know it's you can call me Betty and Betty, you can call me Al. Right. Apparently, Paul I'm Simon made you the girl in that one. <laughs> Paul Simon and his wife Peggy Harper hosted a party in nineteen seventy, and French composer Pierre Boulet was in attendance. Upon leaving the soiree, uh, Boulet called Simon Al and Peggy Betty, and that's how he heard their names and was speaking because of his accented English. Now you know. That's kind of disappointing, actually. It, it is a little bit, but at the same time, at least it's a cut-and-dried answer. Yeah, I suppose. We I know suppose. for sure. Now, I dig this song. It's upbeat. It's fun. The video is hilarious. Most of Paul Simon's stuff is pretty folksy and grassrootsy, if that's even a word. Well, um, it was it was very folksy i mean exactly. simon and garfunkel mm -hmm. and his style didn't change that much no but this one here is just a fun upbeat as i think i said before and just an entertaining song i drank this song a lot I you drank the song or you drank to the song yes okay fair enough <laughs> no i got loaded to this song actually in fact a friend of mine actually lip-synced to it while it was at the bar nice and um yeah, it was good times, and I will never forget this song being part of that, and that's why it has a personal part for me, and I just enjoy it. There's really nothing else to say about it. All right, yeah, I'm going to keep this short and sweet. The, the horns hit, the bongo drums, and right away you know what you're listening to. You know, Paul Simon, I tell you, I had a little bit of a different take on this song. To me, it sounded like he was taking a look at middle age in the song. He's looking for a life partner in Betty. I really enjoy this song, and I can listen to it a lot, and I may have just may have done that getting ready for this podcast. I've put this one on repeat before. <laughs> also, like I said, and, and you brought this up, but the video of Chevy Chase is pretty spectacular in its simplicity. It's it's amazing that how much they did with how little. Yeah, exactly. So why don't you round us out with a finisher? All right, so this one actually is probably my favorite song on the list. Really? At this time, yeah. So, Brian Wilson is a song written by Stephen Page for Canadian rock band Bare Naked Ladies. as a tribute to the Beach Boys co-founder, Brian Wilson. It was released as a single from the band's debut studio album, Gordon, peaking at number 18 on the Canadian singles chart and number 68 on the U.S. Billboard Hot 100. In 2000, Wilson responded with a cover version that was released on his live album, Live at the Roxy Theatre. The song was written by singer-guitarist Steve Page in his parents' basement on his 20th birthday in 1990. 
The first lines of the song chronicle one of his many late-night journeys to the Sam the Record Man on Yonge Street. The song generally tells the story of a man whose life parallels that of the Beach Boys' Brian Wilson, particularly during the time he spent with psychologist Eugene Landy after Wilson was diagnosed with mental illness and, more broadly, with lyrics about suffering from comorbid mental illness and obesity. Let's listen to this one. I'm playing my guitar and building castles in the sun whoa, whoa, whoa. And singing fun, fun, fun I'm lying in bed just like Brian Wilson did Well, I am I'm lying in bed just like Brian Wilson did whoa. So the Bare Naked Ladies is a Canadian rock band. The band is currently composed of Jim Creegden, Kevin Hearn, Ed Robertson, and Tyler Stewart. Bare Naked Ladies formed in 1988 in Scarborough, Ontario as a duo of Robertson and Stephen Page. Brothers Jim and Andy Creegan joined at the end of 1989 and Stewart was added in 1990 while Andy was on hiatus from the group. The band's style has evolved greatly throughout its career and its music, which began as exclusively acoustic, grew, quickly grew to encompass a mixture of a wide array of styles, including pop, rock, hip-hop, rap, and more. The band's cult following translated into immediate success with, the, with Gordon in Canada, with a number of popular singles including If I Had a Million Dollars and Brian Wilson. But it was not until the band's 1996 live album, Rock Spectacle, with its singles, live versions of The Old Apartment and Brian Wilson, and its 1998 four-studio album, Stunt, that the band finally found success in the United States. That's what I heard about them was with Stunt. I heard about it sooner, like a uh, million dollars, and Gordon, I think, is one of the first ones that I had heard. I enjoy Bare Naked Ladies. I and, do, too. And the band is good, too. Yeah. Uh, the band is known for their lighthearted, comedic performance style and humorous chat between songs. Improvised banters and or songs are staples at most concerts. I've never seen them live, have you? I have not. And I don't think I want to. If they're one of these talky bands between... I've heard their live stuff, and it's not that bad. Okay. It's not like Ario Speedwagon, who would not shut the hell up. <laughs> I don't want to listen to you talk for 20 minutes between songs. That shit pisses me off. Yeah, yeah. But that being said, no, I enjoy the song, and as I mentioned, I mean, they're they're a fun band. I like the song Pinch Me, especially the video with the drive through was actually pretty entertaining. Yeah, yeah. And anybody who watches sitcoms on TV will hear their stuff as the opening theme for The Big Bang Theory. Yep, yep. It's the song itself is just a nice non-condescending tribute song. And I say non-condescending because there's a lot of tribute songs out there that are kind of like a backhanded compliment. Yeah, oh yeah, absolutely. Whereas this one I think is just a really nice thing. So. Yeah. All right, and with that, we're going to wrap up this week. Okay, listen up, everybody. Turn up your volumes. Announcement. I want to say, uh, you know, if you want to drop us a line, talk to us, let us know anything, what you think about this episode or any other episode, there's a few ways you can do that. First of all, you can reach out to us on email at musicchallengepodcast at gmail.com, or you can find us on Facebook at POI Network or at Musically Challenged Podcast. And as we've started telling you guys here in the last few weeks, we now tweeter. We do indeed. In fact, if you want to get in touch with us there, it is going to be at MC Podcast 17. So MC Music the Challenge Podcast and then 17 for our birth year. And what 1917 you were born in? Not as old as you, you bastard. Oh, you mean you mean the birth year of our podcast? Yes, indeed. Oh, okay. So, and thank you for the, explaining that to the slow people who listen to us. <laughs> Condescending dick. 
<laughs> but yes, um, send us a line there if you want to send a playlist, 14 songs, 14 artists. If you want to do a theme, you get bonus points. Sure. We're, we're handing out points like a motherfucker. Absolutely. Now, getting back to trivia time. Oh, yes. Let's do the trivia. Let's wrap this up. All right. So refreshing the question. American DJ Robert Weston Smith was best known by his stage name of what? Okay. So I've got two. One is Casey Kasem and the other is Shadow Stevens. Both excellent choices. Both wrong. Oh. Wolfman Jack. Oh, okay. Excellent. And with that, I have gone below the 500 mark. You are mark. now four and five. I am four and five. And with that, I want to say thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you next week. You have been listening to a program from the Point of Insanity Network. Visit us at poigamestudio.podbean.com for more shows. Follow us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at POI Game Studio.